Hi, Bobby. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. You? Thank you very much. Also, thank you very much for coming uh, to our podcast. Tell us about the origin story of Seras. How did uh, you come up with the idea, and what motivated you to start this company? Sure, it's a bit of a roundabout story, but uh, we started uh, this company as a coffee company. Um, and to kind of give you a little bit of background uh, on me, I come from a data background, uh, quantitative trading to uh, hedge funds to banking to fintech. So um, this is more or less a coffee company, just between a couple of friends uh, starting it, uh, bringing green coffee, good coffee beans from Central uh, America, from El Salvador and Costa Rica, uh, bringing it here, roasting it, packaging, and selling it. And uh, during that process, we saw a lot of degradation of the coffee coming from uh, Central America here uh, to Texas. And during that process, uh, coffee's ranked between zero to 100. So anything above an 80 is your specialty grade coffee. And that's really what we wanted to focus on is a specialty grade coffee. So if it was an 89 or 90 at the coffee mill, by the time it got to us, it was an 82 to 83. And we wanted to understand why this was happening. Why was there consistent degradation of the coffee? So we talked to our buyers, our distributors, our suppliers, all saying the same thing. The lack of transparency, and it's the other person's problem. So given our tech backgrounds, we decided, well, why don't we solve our own problem? So we made a rough version of our technology and then rode a cargo ship for six days from Mexico to Colombia and saw all the points at which coffee can degrade from the weather to the port congestion to when we arrived in Colombia, there was geopolitical risk with the cartels. There was, you know, Humvees driving around with turrets on top of it. So there's a lot of different things that really could have affected that coffee bean. And that's really what kind of gave us uh, the idea of, well, why don't we start aggregating a lot of these different data sources? Because there's so many things that can affect the supply chain. So that's when we decided, well, why don't we turn Saris Coffee into Saris Technology? So, and tell us about more, how did you uh, convert it to Saris Technology? Because you have a product now, which is um, uh, getting a Nostradamus AI, which yeah. uh, also predicts the supply chain uh, predictions. So tell tell us more about this uh, product and service. Sure, sure. You know, uh, when when we were you know riding on the, uh, the cargo ship coming from Mexico to to Colombia, you know, uh, we had the there was a Romanian crew members, and then we had the Filipino crew members, and you know they were all asking if we were CIA or drug runners uh, at that time, and. You know, uh, it was funny to see that, you know, just two people riding on a a cargo ship there. But uh, after speaking to them, you know, we know we, we started asking, you know, what is all the different factors that can affect, you know, shipping and just even movement of goods. And they, you know, there's so many different factors and learning that process and being at the ports and going through all this, you know, uh, during that journey. How we decided to shift it is, well, all right, well, now that we've kind of have, you know, a solution in place, an idea of a solution that can, you know, solve our own problem. Well, this is a problem that could be solved to many other different businesses from there. So 
learning all the intricacies, being boots on the ground and understanding that this is a problem that is faced by a lot of different businesses. Um, so we decided, well, why don't we kind of convert this? You know, why don't we kind of go full steam ahead with Sarah's technology? We have the solution and why don't we just kind of go for it, start it, and we have the idea of what the solution would be like. And that's kind of where we started our journey into Sarah's technology. I mean, the recent weeks has shown us that supply chain uh, roads and also uh, all these, uh, especially uh, predictions are more valuable to all of us. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, what happened in Yemen and Houthis? Did you have uh, with your AI these kinds of predictions earlier than it happened? Yeah, there's two different ways that we kind of classify these uh these types of things. One is uh, event-driven, so being able to see, you know, specific events like Houthis and or the Suez Canal or uh, Panama Canal. So these are event-driven types of things which we can pick up. So as things are formulating through news feeds or Twitter feeds, we can be able to pick up some of that chatter. Now, the second way that we kind of classify things is longer-term trends. So these are kind of the subtle trends that are underlying the the supply chain. So, for example, we found for one client that the price of rice in Malaysia was a leading indicator of a delay for shipments coming from that region. And the reason why is you know, uh, rice is such a big part of the Malaysian economy, which impacts prices, wages, and then ultimately shipments coming from there. So... Uh, that's kind of how we classify it. So going back to your uh, question with the, um, you know, a lot of the geopolitical risks that that's happening. So we're we're actually able to kind of catch that chatter as things were able to form. So, you know, before it became like this, you know, kind of this entire thing, we're able to catch some of that chatter. So um, that's kind of how we classify, you know, how we're able to pick up and detect things at a high predictability rate is being able to look at all the events, but also take a look at some of these longer-term subtle trends within the supply chain that may not be so obvious to uh, to businesses. What makes the Ceres proprietary AI model unique compared to other supply chain analytics tools on the market? And uh, why is it hard to others to replicate this kind of uh, model? Sure. So there's a couple of different ways. I mean, we've had, you know, uh, clients uh, go to consulting companies to help solve this problem. We, we, we actually beat the big three consulting shops for a very large pharmaceutical client. And, you know, we have a product. We're not a consulting company. So we're um, able to do that. The other way of doing it, we're competing with Excel spreadsheets and best guesses. And we have a data-driven approach. Now, the, the third way is mapping your supply chain. So being able to, you know, understand who your suppliers are and then your supplier suppliers and then your supplier supplier suppliers. Now, that's a very intensive process. And typically what that works is with supply chain mapping software is you have to send forms out to your suppliers. They have to fill it out. Then they have to send it out to their supplier suppliers. And then that process goes forward. And that becomes really burdensome, especially when you're talking with companies that may have a thousand suppliers or 10,000 suppliers. So for us, our AI engine is able to do that much faster. We don't require any data. Our system is set up much quicker. It doesn't take months. And really our AI engine and how we built it is geared towards specifically solving this problem. So 
we have pre-trained models where companies could come on, uh, train them specifically for their own supply chain in a very easy, quick manner. Much like you know how ChatGPT can train your own model and kind of use it to tailor it to your specific needs. So our systems are built to have a company come in, you can train it towards your uh, supply chain, and then we're able to give you a highly accurate forecast. So having all those different data sources coming in and all those pre-trained models and having it set up in a way where you can easily set up, it's quicker, faster, and more efficient. Um... What are the, some major customers you have been working with? What types of companies stand to benefit most of your uh, solution? Any company that has a multinational, multimodal supply chain. So if you're working, for example, with a supplier and that supplier may be in a different country, then it's a good fit. Or if you've got a supplier that's even within your country that may have suppliers that work with other suppliers outside of your country, it's a good fit. So uh, we don't necessarily say if, you know, sometimes you're working with a produce company and their supply chain, especially here uh, in the States, they typically work with farms in California. That's probably not a good fit. But if you have something that's a multinational, multimodal supply chain, it's a good fit. Now, our kind of main focus on the verticals is pharmaceuticals and uh, complex manufacturing. So Pharmaceuticals, of course, you know, we're we're working with the Fortune 10 pharmaceutical client right now. They're a pharmaceutical distributor and obviously getting vaccines and drugs, you know, to patients, that's a critical thing. So understanding what where the risks risks are. And how we define complex manufacturing is basically products that are made with many different components, like a laptop, you know, we're 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 working with the Fortune 50 uh, computer manufacturer right now it could be a car you know has all these different parts so that's kind of how we define complex manufacturing and farm of course our system can be used with a lot of different verticals which is great uh, but that's really kind of you know our our two uh, go-to market verticals right now so what are the results for the companies i mean have you been able to deliver um give us some examples for example if Uh, we were your customers. Uh, what kind of results should you give for, for example, the recent supply chain disruptions? Sure. So um, I'll give you an example right now. When one of our uh, that Fortune 10 uh, pharma clients, we're able to achieve an 82% predictability six months in advance, which is double their PO life cycle. Uh, that was a huge breakthrough because uh, they went to three big consulting firms. And the best they could do was three weeks in advance. We were able to do 24 weeks in advance, giving you a signal of a potential delay or d- d- disruption, which is 8x uh, better than the nearest uh, nearest company that could do something similar. Uh, did this customer act uh, on your results? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. So there's uh, really three, um, we're, we're seeing three really main uses uh, of our system and data. Um, one is from a procurement standpoint. So really uh, the value of our system is being able to have procurement teams understand which products and suppliers are at risk. So our system is able to tell you the risk of each product and supplier. It's able to tell you the reason behind that risk. 
exactly which data sets, like for example, is it the price of rice? Is it the, you know, the, the conflict with the Houthis with all these different things? And we'll also tell you the delay severity. So if there is a delay, a predicted delay, is it gonna be delayed by one to six weeks, six to 12 weeks, so on and so forth. So what you can do with that data is being able from a procurement standpoint, understand, all right, if I know which of my suppliers are more at risk, I can shift POs, uh, to a different supplier, or maybe I know that I'm going to a different supplier that's even more expensive, but I know that they will for sure be able to deliver on the product. So from a procurement planning standpoint, that's one of the uh, cases. Another one is inventory management, uh, being able to understand the lead times, especially when it goes into safety stock. And if you're better able to forecast those lead times, you can better manage that safety stock, increases cash to go to other parts of the business. And then finally, from a demand planning standpoint. So if you're predicting a 10% increase in demand, you still have to fulfill that demand. So being able to create some resiliency along on the supply side to meet the d d demand side. I mean, being a young startup, uh, what uh, have been the biggest challenges that you face, especially bringing a new product into the market? Uh, uh, what are, what were the difficulties when you have um, go to market? Yeah, I would say one of the things, especially when you're dealing with you know large large client base, especially when you're dealing with the Fortune 500, Fortune 2000, one is not having the brand recognition. So, of course, you know if going with the top three consulting firm, it's a safe bet, right? Even you know it's a, it's a safe bet to go onto there, but Fortunately for us, uh, this executive uh, at this Fortune 500, he said, something is telling me that you guys will be able to figure it out. So he was able to take that risk on us. And I'm glad he did because it ended up working out really, really well for uh, everybody involved. So um, one is kind of that brand recognition of why us versus going to, you know, uh, McKinsey or a BCG or maybe, you know, another player that's much more larger and established that may not do exactly what you guys do, but, um, but, you know, at least they have the, the brand name. So I think that was one. Uh, the second was understanding the internal dynamics and budgeting process of how these fortune 500s and 1000 stinks and being able to understand the stakeholders involved and really narrowing down your target market and really understanding uh, who the check writers are. So it's it's much different than, you know, dealing with small to medium-sized businesses where you can set up one demo and they'll be able to say yes or no, and they'll be able to 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 sign up. With enterprises, it's, you know, can be a six to 12 month uh, sales cycle. So you have to understand that, uh, that, that level of intricacy within those types of uh, uh, large scale enterprises. How will you maintain your competitive edge uh, in the market? Because AI is um, completely getting all the markets, not only verticals and also uh, lots of sectors. And uh, what will be your competitive edge regarding to not being copied? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So uh, there's, there's a couple things. I know with the whole chat GPT thing, you know, that's becoming a huge, huge deal. Um, one thing with, you know, ChatGPT, and it hasn't gone there yet, you know, eventually will, it's a really good co-pilot, you know, being able to understand the data and being able to give you, you know, levels of 
kind of fluency in, in simple language to be able to um, understand, like, you know, uh, being able to type in, you know, can you give me a summary of the state? It does a really good job of that. Now, our system isn't necessarily that. It's a decision-making process. So it's, you know, helping with the decision-making of the business. So, you know, that's kind of where, where we see the AI intelligence, the decision-making uh, intelligence. Now, we're actually incorporating some large language models, you know, trying to create a Ceres co-pilot to help you during that process. Um, but, you know, that's kind of where we see with the whole, you know, chat GPT and with decision-making AIs. Now, for us to continue to stay within the market, you know, uh, we, 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 we are ahead of the market, uh, but we've got a lot more, you know, value add features that we're going to continue to build. Of course, you know, we're filed a patent for our uh, proprietary uh, AI as well. So kind of building the mode of, you know, building our own uh, neural networks and all these different things. But also we've got a lot more uh, ideas on how to add value and generate value for, uh, for, for clients that we've got coming up in the pipeline over the next 12 to 24 months. If you could, uh, if you could go back three years earlier, what advice would you give yourself? Very good question. There's there's a lot. <laughs> uh, just for just for me personally, I think uh, going through the entrepreneurial uh, kind of story arc, if you will, I think there's been a lot of personal growth for me personally. Just being able to understand, you know, the business and you know. Uh, understanding who I am as a person and understanding the, you know, the, the type of leader that, that I, that, that I am, I think those are all really important things to understand early on. Um, so I think that's probably one of the, one of the advices is just, you know, um, you know, that personal growth and understanding, you know, taking the time to understand, you know, um, your weaknesses, your strengths and all these different things. Um, that's just from, from a personal side, uh, from a business side, um, I think, you know, um, being able to, uh, you know, uh, getting that MVP out, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be perfect. Understanding the concept, understanding the real, you know, uh, intricacies of what an MVP really means. I think that will help a lot of startups, especially when in the, in the beginning phases and just generate enough value where someone will get you to write a check. So I think that's probably uh, one of the, one of the, the biggest values, but I think from, from a personal side, I think it's been a, it's been an interesting growth experience just from a personal standpoint that I would say, you know, someone, you know, for myself three years ago is just to embrace that. <laughs> so let's deep delve about the MVP thing. Tell me more what yeah. happened with the MVP. Did you, be, I mean, uh, uh, did you uh, launch your MVP very late or what was the problem? I think it's just more of an iterative process. So yes, it's uh, getting clients involved in the process quicker and you'd be surprised, especially, you know, your early customers and they understand that it's not going to work completely. So you don't have to be afraid of, getting a product out there that doesn't work. You know, your early customers know that. And if you're upfront with them in the beginning, hey, this is in beta. And sometimes, you know, you've built a good, typically, you know, your first customers are typically people you have a good relationship with or someone that understands this. They just want to be kind of at the forefront. So if you're upfront with them, things are going to break, but that's fine. And they'll give you the best feedback possible because it's very honest. 
and hey, this didn't work. So you're constantly tweaking it or, hey, actually, you know, this would make my life easier if you made this better or change this thing. So uh, I think that's probably uh, from from our perspective is don't be afraid to put something out into the market, um, you know, especially even if you don't think it's 100% complete. You'll get that feedback and you'll continue to iterate and it'll make it better and better and better. So. Uh, from your past experience, uh, what was your uh, three failures that you have uh, seen if you look back to the history? Good question. Uh, I'll give you I'll give you a personal one. Uh, I think uh, I think I've gotten better at delegating. <laughs> Um, being able to delegate work better because I tend to take on a lot of uh, a lot of work myself. But I think if there are other people people that can do it better, um, I think that's just from a personal growth standpoint. Is myself as being able to delegate better. Um, second, I would say, um, you know, the learning experience from that MVP. Um, I think that was also another good learning experience to understand. The clients and being able to uh, pivot when we need to. Um, I think that's probably another thing is to understand what the client wants. And of course, like you're, you're, we're 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 all going to do small pivots. Like the 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 vision stays the same, but you know how you get there is always you know things you have to be flexible on and and pivot on. So being able to pivot. All right, you know we tried this little tactic here. It didn't work out. Understanding when to know to. Uh, cut your losses and move on or being able to, you know, kind of continue on uh, down that route. So I would say that's probably another uh, learning experience is how to pivot when you need to. Um, that was another personal experience. And the third one, I would say a third one is personnel. I think um, another difficult thing is understanding to hire the right people, and even if someone has the right skill set, but they don't have the personality of a startup, you know, it just takes a different um, mentality when you come to a startup. For example, you know, uh, I'll give you kind of an example just uh, on a sales side and maybe even on an engineering front. But if you worked at, you know, an Oracle or SAP, you you understand the the sales cycle, the enterprise level of sales cycle, but Coming to a startup, you have to have a different type of mentality is grinding it out every day. It's not going to be a set process. You have to define what those processes are. So you have to have a level of mentality between startup scrappiness and understanding, you know, the enterprise side. So that was kind of one thing is understanding the blend between there. And even from an engineering standpoint, you know, someone may have the right skill set, but coming into a startup, you've got to iterate fast and you got to move fast and you got to understand customer feedback just because you think something is right, but the customer is telling you something is different. You have to understand and learn with that feedback. And um, I think understanding, you know, just for, for us and just for me in particular is um, you kind of, just because someone has a great resume and a great skill set doesn't necessarily translate well into a startup. It just takes a specific type of mindset. So when they say that it has to be a culture fit, I think that is something that I've had to experience firsthand is to understand, yes, the culture fit of a startup uh, has to be there. How do you motivate yourself in tough times? <laughs> That's a good question too. 
Um, I think in good times, or sorry, in, in bad times, um, yeah, I think, uh, I don't know who I was listening to. It was, uh, it was some sports athlete, and they said, you know, in tough times, one thing you just got to do, you just got to keep pushing forward because the tough times never last. So I think understanding the fact that the good times never last for, for, for as long as you want, and the bad times don't last as long as you think they do. So understanding that, just being kind of on an even keel basis, I think understanding, hey, it's a bad time. It's probably going to suck over the next few weeks, but we'll eventually get through it and it'll eventually get back to, you know, good, good time. So I think understanding that just from an even keel standpoint, but also I think focusing on the good things that you are doing is also another good motivating factor is like, yes, these particular things suck, but if you focus on the, on the better things and the good things that, that, that you're doing, I think that that also helps you to to get through some of these tough times. How did you meet with your co-founder, uh, Trey, and decide work together? Yeah. I met him uh, about eight years ago. I uh, met through a mutual friend uh, in Dallas. And yeah, we just worked on a few projects together, did some work together, and we just have a very good complementary skill set. And uh, I think that's another thing that uh, I've realized just, you know, going through the startup experience when, you know, when, when, when people say it's good for founders to have worked together in the past, because, you know, uh, you kind of understand, for example, because Trey and I worked with each other in the past, we have complementary skill sets and we learned that and we learned that we have complementary skill sets. So I get to focus on, you know, what, uh, what, what I'm good at. He gets to focus on what he's good at. So we've got a good working relationship um, and we've gone through tough times together. So it's, so we understand how each other work during those tough times. Um, and even at the beginning of starting Saris, even though we had worked together, we actually went to a corporate counselor and sat down with him and talked through, you know, just before starting the business, we kind of just went through that corporate counseling process and, I think that was a really good, solid foundation going forward. And I think having that really is good because if, you do, if you've never worked with a person you're founding a company with, especially your friends, it can get kind of dicey. Not to say that it can't work. It's just, um, it's just, you know, it's just a bit different when you haven't worked with someone, you don't understand how they react under stress. I think that's another big indicator is things will go bad. But if you can trust each other to, you know, how each other focuses under stress or how they, you know, react under stress, because some people tend to lose it under stress and it's not good. But, you know, you, you, you understand how, how each other works. So I think going through those stress periods is another good, uh, a good thing for founders to have gone through. <laughs> do you believe in work-life balance? How do you uh, balance uh, uh, this uh equation i think it's a moving target um i think the work-life balance is just it's it's not static it's not saying well 80 20 or 70 30 i think it kind of ebbs and flows sometimes it has to be 90 10 to work you know to 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 work life and other times it is 60 40 or just personally for me i, I think i'm always geared towards more work anyway but I don't think there's like a set percentage of like, it has to be 60, 40 or 70, 30. I think it kind of flows just best based on what the needs of the business are, where you're at uh, in the business, obviously starting off in the business, 
it's going to be a lot more. And then other times, you know, you know, it's just, I, I think it's kind of a, a moving target. And, you know, especially when you start, want to start a family, I think those are all different considerations that you definitely need to have. Um, so I think it's, I think it's a moving target based on where you're at, you know, what goals of the business are at that current time, what the needs are, maybe one thing requires your attention more than others. So you kind of have to shift and refocus a little bit. <laughs> uh, do you have mentors or uh, influence? I mean, uh, people that influenced your life and work life. And what is the uh, best advice and worst advice uh, that you have uh, given? <laughs> uh, totally, totally. I think, you know, uh, there's been a lot of people that have um, helped me along the way so far. And yes, uh, I've had uh, mentors, and mentors are different stages. So, um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, what is the best and worst advice? I think one of the, I mean, we can start with the with the best advice first. I think, um, yeah, I guess this is more of a a simple one, but it actually cuts deep. But I think. Uh, learning to sell as you know a founder and ceo of a, of a business you're you're going to need to sell and it's not just selling in the sense of uh you know selling in the sense of oh i've got to sell a company to get more revenue it's you know you've got to be able to uh sell you know talent to uh creating a story i think that's probably 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 a a, a better way of saying it is um understanding the 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 storytelling aspect of you know what do you need to uh, craft the story of your business to your uh, employees, to your business partners, to uh, investors, uh, all these different things. So I think that's probably, there was one mentor in mind. I'll give him a shout out. His name is Carl Dorville. Um, so he, he, he actually helped me uh, a lot with that process. Um, the worst advice, that's another good one. May have to think about this for for a second, but I, I think I don't necessarily I don't necessarily think there's one thing that comes to mind. I think when it comes to advice, um, you know, it's just you just have to take everything with 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 a grain of salt. I, and I've been given advice. I don't think it is necessarily worse advice on like how to run the particular business or you should do this, you should do that. It's it's a oftentimes people come from their own experiences and then try to tell you an advice based on their experience. And it could be applicable to, let's say for what, what we're doing or what some other founder is doing, but oftentimes, you know, coming from your experience to shift it to something that's different. Uh, you just have to take advice with, with a grain of salt. You just have to understand what your unique situation is because every business has a unique situation. We, we may be all in, like in startups or in a particular sector, but every business has a unique challenge and a unique experience. So I think uh, understanding you know, um, that they're giving you their advice from their experience doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work for you. So I think you kind of have to learn to sift through that. I think that was uh, another learning process. And I can't think of the top of my head what was the worst advice, but I've tried to implement a couple of different things that uh, advisors or things have given me and it just didn't work out because we're just in a completely different situation in a different business. So, <laughs> What are your favorite podcasts, blogs, or books that changed your life? Um, I think a recent book um, was Zero to One. I think that was an, a, a good book. Um, um, that's for startup. 
Um, I think uh, another good book was 48 Laws of Power. I think that's a good book. I think it's a bit draconian, the the 48 Laws of Power. I think it's a bit too – It's it just foregoes the people aspect a little too much, but I think it was a good book nonetheless. Um, uh, podcast, Lex Friedman. I actually like uh, Lex Friedman a lot. Um, uh, he has some really good, interesting stuff. I think um, the PBD podcast, when it comes to business, I actually like like that uh, podcast or that uh, aspect of it. Um, yeah, and then I, uh, I typically just, uh, yeah, they're just more or less like I just like, I like YouTube a lot, so I'll I'll, I'll learn things. <laughs> so just uh, learn things, but I think those are probably the only two ones that I probably listen to on a regular basis. Other ones are just kind of here and there. So um, yeah, I know there's a couple ones, but those are those the those are the two that come to top of mind right now. If you could have a dinner with a, a historical figure, who would it be? Hmm. Good question. Uh, dead or alive, or is it? Does it? Does it matter? Dead or alive? Okay. Hmm. Um, I would say probably Alexander the Great. Um, I've been going down. <laughs> I've been going down on a bit of a rabbit hole. I mean, this has been something I've been uh, interested in over the past few years. Is different generals and how their battle tactics work and their leadership qualities. And one thing about interesting with uh, Alexander the Great, he led with a sense of fearlessness and he had really good innovative tactics on the battlefield. At that time, it wasn't seen. So I think one of the best stories that, you know, probably what I would choose him over maybe another general is uh, he was trying to attack this island and he was on a beach. And what he decided is he decided to build a bridge over a few months from the beach to the island with arrows being sent over from the island to the bridge, but they built kind of a cover over it. So he that sense of fearlessness of I'm just going to get to my objective <laughs> was it's actually uh, that was one of the cooler stories. So I'll probably say uh, Alexander the Great. <laughs> What, what superpower would you like to have uh, if you could have been uh, the Marvel characters? Uh, I don't know if a Marvel character has this, but I think reading people's minds. I think maybe uh, uh, maybe not Marvel character. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if they, they are a Marvel character or not, but um, Professor Xavier <laughs> from... Yes, so I think that would be a cool. I think it would be a cool one to have. So I think it's a very powerful, powerful uh, uh, superpower. <laughs> Bobby, thank you very much for the conversation today. I I enjoyed it a lot. Of course, thank you, thank you. Appreciate it. It was uh, it was fun.